You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. this evening to our Eddie and Sylvia Brown African American Department. We are honored to have you here as part of the Brown Lecture Series, which is made possible by the Brown Family Foundation. This evening, we are excited to have our guest lecturer, Paul Butler, here to discuss his latest work, Chokehold, Policing Black Men, Policing Black Men. He is a native of Chicago, Illinois, and he attended Yale University and Harvard Law School. His law career is quite impressive, and his achievements are too many to include in this brief introduction. However, he clerked for the Honorable Mary Johnson Lowe of the U.S. District Court in New York. He later joined the law firm of Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C., where he specialized in white-collar criminal defense and civil litigation. And he served as a federal prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice, where he served as a special assistant U.S. attorney prosecuting drug and gun cases. Currently, Paul Butler is professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches criminal law and criminal procedure. He is an expert in criminal law and in the study of the effects of race upon jury decisions. His scholarship is published in numerous journals, including the Yale Law Journal and the Harvard, Stanford, and UCLA Law Reviews. He has written numerous columns, book reviews, and op-ed articles for several prominent newspapers, and he provides legal commentary for CNN, MSNBC, and NPR. Also, he has been featured on 60 Minutes and profiled in the Washington Post. And if that is not enough, he is the author of Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice, and his latest work, Chokehold. And I must admit I'm a fan because I watch him religiously on MSNBC. Please join me in welcoming Paul Butler to Baltimore and the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Uh, uh, Thank you so much for that, that great introduction. Um, it's wonderful to be here at the Pratt Library, and it's an honor to give the Brown Lecture. So uh, thank you all. It's wonderful to see so many of you here. We're going to have a, a great conversation. So I have a wonderful uh, VJ who was helping me out. If she's around, we can. looks like she's, she's coming back now. So we're going to get the, the PowerPoint um, fired up to see and hear uh, some of these issues that I want us to to think about tonight. And so while that's getting set up, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Paul Butler, and I represent the people. Uh, That's how I used to start my opening statements. I was a prosecutor. I represented the government in criminal court in the District of Columbia, and I used that power to put black men in prison and black women and poor people, and Latinos. Like a lot of prosecutors, it was pretty much all I did. During the time I I did that work, I learned some things. 
that changed the ways that I felt about my responsibilities as an American, as an African American, as a lawyer, and as a person who wants to make a difference in this world. So my book, Chokehold, Policing Black Men, is about what I learned. And, and I'll tell you that some of my, my best teachers were jurors in the District of Columbia. If you go to criminal court in D.C., then and now, you would think that white people don't commit crimes. You would think that white people don't use drugs, they don't get into fights, they don't steal. And that's not just true in Baltimore, in, in Washington. It's also true in Baltimore and a bunch of other places where African Americans and Latinos are vastly overrepresented in the criminal court. And the jurors of the District of Columbia, uh, they saw that, and they wondered what was going on. And so when I was a rookie prosecutor, I was instructed by the experienced law enforcement officers that sometimes I would persuade a jury beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that the defendant was guilty. But if it were a drug case, especially if it were a nonviolent possession case, uh, the jurors would say he was not guilty, even though they knew he was. And they would do that because they didn't want to send another black man to jail. And the experienced prosecutors who told us rookies about this, they kind of rolled their eyes like these D.C. jurors. Here we are trying to help them. And they don't have the sense to lock up their drug users and drug sellers. And when I started trying cases, I saw that was exactly right. They knew if it were, again, low-level drug case, uh, they knew their Cretan was guilty. That's what we call accused people in the prosecutor's office, Cretans and worse. They knew the Cretan was guilty. I knew he was guilty. And yet they would refuse to convict. And the other thing that happened, though, is that I gained an extraordinary amount of respect uh, for these jurors in the District of Columbia. Uh, these were African-American, older people, the main people who would show up for jury duty. And they would come dressed in their Sunday go-to-church clothes, and it was a bother to be called to jury duty, but it was also an honor because these are people who moved to D.C. from North Carolina, South Carolina, 1940s, 50s, 60s, and they could remember when black people weren't allowed to be on juries. And they were expecting that the defendant was going to be black, and they were right. What they weren't expecting is other black men in a suit, talk about his name was Paul Butler, and he represents the people. And these jurors, these old African-American women and men, they would beam at me like they were thinking, you go, boy. <laughs> you represent the people. I was hired to be a, a black prosecutor. And I was good at performing both those aspects of my job description. So for jurors who had concerns about the utter blackness of the criminal court, uh, I was hired for them to see this beautiful chocolate skin. 
supposed to make them think it's okay. Everything's fine. Go to sleep. Uh, you all know that things are, are so far from fine. That the United States locks up more people than any country in the history of the world. And that Baltimore is ground zero uh, for the incarceration of young black men and women. And, and so at the end of the day, what, what I decided is uh, the investment that, that people like you made in me uh, to give me the opportunity to go to those fancy schools that you heard about. Uh, ultimately, I decided I didn't go to Harvard Law School to put black people in prison. Uh, I didn't graduate with all those loans to lock up poor people. And, and so what my work has been since then, uh, I call myself a recovering prosecutor. Uh, but I, I still believe in, in safety, right? Uh, I, I still want people to feel comfortable in their neighborhoods. Uh, but now I understand that uh, the work that I was doing as a prosecutor, the tool that I had, locking people up, it's not the right tool, making things worse, not better. And so those are some of the ideas that are in my book, Show Calls. So I think the idea is uh, for me to talk for another few minutes about some of the main themes in the book and then open it up to a conversation. Uh, the main idea in Choco is that when we look at uh, these cases that are in the news, uh, all this police violence, I don't have to tell you a whole lot about that here in Baltimore, and, and then we see what happens, uh, like we saw what happened here in Baltimore. Why don't we see more prosecutions when police beat up and kill African-American people. And, and the few times they are prosecuted, uh, like here, uh, why don't we see convictions? Uh, some people say that it's because the system is broke. So the radical idea in chokehold is that the system is working the way it's supposed to. If it's broke, it's broke on purpose. So when we think about a lot of the problems that folks have identified with the American, I don't like to call it the criminal justice process because there's nothing justice about it. So let's call it the, the criminal legal process. When we look at the criminal legal process and we think about the problems that a lot of us have with it, why we lock up so many people, why the police are so violent. Why prisons are so brutal. Uh, why we are losing our civil liberties. Everywhere we go, we're being watched by the government. The radical idea in Chokehold is that's all about black men. That these features of our criminal justice system, mass incarceration, violent policing, erosion of civil liberties, brutal prisons, are about controlling African-American men. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we are the only subjects of these powers. Please certainly use them against black women, against Latino people, many places against Native Americans, against people in the trans community. Uh, but they're developed for African-American men. And so the book is Chokehold. Chokehold is a, a two-step process. Uh, one is this construction of every black man as a thug. Right, so that's the genius of the way this works, right? Because the chokehold doesn't only apply to the brothers who are in the system. It applies to every African-American man. Every time we leave our house, we have to engage in some performance to show the world that we're safe. Uh, maybe it's prominently displaying our, our, our work IDs, our, our college or high school uh, T-shirts. Maybe it's, it's crossing the street uh, when we're walking behind someone so uh, he or she doesn't get afraid. So these are the ways that African-American men are constructed as, as thugs. So in the book, I talk about some cutting-edge research uh, that demonstrates this. Uh, but I also talk about stories uh, that black men tell. Uh, one of those stories is how people don't like to sit next to us on public transportation. So um, there was actually a, a good article about this in the New York Times a couple of, of years ago. Uh, a black man was, takes Amtrak, a professor like me. You know, on Amtrak, you can choose where you sit. Right? He, he said that the seat next to him is always the, the last to, to fill up. Again, it's about this anxiety, this fear that uh, a lot of people have about black men. Um, on ESPN, you know, the, uh, the sports journals, J.J. Andenate, I don't know if he'd read that article, but he brought it up as well, brought up this, this situation. But he was talking about Southwest Airline, where you also get to choose your own seat. Uh, J.J. said if there's a, a brother in the aisle seat and a brother in the, and a brother in the um, window seat, then that middle seat is the last to go. Uh, but J.J. says African-American men... We love Southwest because we get more leg room. <laughs> so obviously the, the anxiety has more serious Again, consequences as well. Chokehold is this idea that um, black men are, are, are scary, that we're thugs. And then the second part is this legal and social response, uh, a way of containing the thug, uh, of putting us down. And so that's where I talk about the system being broke on purpose. So when I say that the law, the police, the jailers are out to get black men, it sounds like a crazy conspiracy. So one of the things I want to do in Chokehold is to provide evidence about why I think that's so. So some of it, I think, will, will blow your mind. Again, this idea that the system's set up to, to target black men. So check this out. The Supreme Court has a case that says that if you are mentally disabled, you cannot be executed because you can't appreciate what you've done. Right? Makes sense. 
So the way that a lot of states measure your intellectual ability is by IQ tests. There are some states in the South where if a black person, almost always a black man, uh, takes this IQ test to see if he's eligible to be executed. Uh, after he takes the test, the state adds 10 to 15 points to his IQ on the grounds that IQ tests discriminate against black people. <laughs> and that bumps him up to where he can be executed. So again, I'm not making it up. I'm not being paranoid when I say that the system is out to, to get African-American men. So you could look at a bunch of different actors in the criminal justice or criminal legal process. Um, let's think about the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court has given the police what I call superpowers, uh, which authorizes uh, what happened to, to, to Freddie Gray. Um, it explains uh, why there weren't convictions in that case. And so um, one case we could think about is called Scott versus Harris. A uh, young man in Atlanta, 19-year-old black man, speeding. Cops try to pull him over. He should have stopped, knucklehead kid. He keeps going. Police can't catch up to him. High-speed chase all through the city of Atlanta. Uh, cops get so frustrated that they can't catch him that what they do is deliberately bump into his car real hard so the car crashes down a steep cliff. Car bursts into flames um, the young man, thank God he survived, uh, but he's rendered a, a, a quadriplegic. The issue before the Supreme Court was, can the police do that? For speeding. They had his license plate number, so it wasn't about identifying him. They could have just stopped the chase and arrested him another time for speeding, right? So the question the court thought about, the court said, we're going to assume that that was deadly force, that pushing that car off that ravine. Are the police allowed to use deadly force uh, to enforce the crime of speeding? The court said, yes, because the young man was creating a danger to others by his uh, driving uh, that is being chased by the police. Well, the police could have stopped that danger by stopping the chase, right? They had his ID number. Supreme Court said, oh, the police don't have to do that. Uh, they're entitled to use deadly force whenever anyone's presenting a threat, even if the reason that the threat is present is because of what the police are doing. So superpower to, to kill, uh, superpower to, to racially profile. Uh, this is a case from DC, another young black man, Mr. Wren. So cops pull him over for among other things, waiting too long at a stop sign. Did you know that was a, a, a traffic infraction? I, I didn't know that either. Well, the police in D.C. do. But, of course, that's not why they really pulled him over. Uh, they wanted to stop him because he was a young black man. They wanted to look in the car and see what they could see. And that's what this young man tells the Supreme Court. Well, the police shouldn't be able to stop me for something that silly if we know what the real deal was. And the court said, well, is it a traffic infraction to wait too long at a stop sign in D.C.? And the answer is yes, it is. 
And so the Supreme Court said, no problem. The police can stop you for anything. We're not going to ask why they're doing it. We're not going to ask what's going on in their mind. Um, we're going to ask, is it a traffic infraction? Okay, so to demonstrate how much power that gives the police, and this isn't going to surprise a lot of the, the African-American people in the room. Uh, how much power does that case give the police? I call it superpowers uh, because I have a cop buddy who, in my class at Georgetown, I teach a class about the law of the police. He comes and tells the students about what it's like being a cop. And he says, tell you what, you guys can actually go on a ride along with me, which means that you can sit in the back of my police car and see what it's like to be a cop in D.C. And this case is called Wren. Uh, he says, I'm going to show you how much power Wren gives me. We're going to play a game against student in the back of the police car. The game is called Pick a Car. And what the cop tells the student is, pick any car you want, and I'll stop it. And the student will say, okay, well, that white Camry over there, uh, this guy's a good cop. He waits until he has a legal reason. Uh, but he says if he follows any car for three or four blocks, he will find a legal reason to stop it. Uh, he says he can stop any car on the road. And once he can stop it, again, the law is that he can order the passenger and driver to get out. He can pat them down if he thinks they might be armed. He can ask them if they can, if they can search their car. Extraordinary amount of power. And then, again, this isn't a criminal or procedural lecture, but just one more case to talk about these superpowers. Uh, this is a case in Texas involving a, a white woman in this instance, literally a soccer mom, Mrs. Atwater, who got pulled over for driving without a, a seatbelt. So gets arrested, taken to the police station, booked, that is, fingerprinted, mugshot taken, all of that. And she says to the Supreme Court, well, the weird thing about getting arrested for driving without a seatbelt in Texas is that if I'm guilty of that crime, I can't be locked up. The maximum penalty is a $50 fine. So she asked the court, how can I be arrested for a crime that if I were guilty of it, I couldn't go to jail? What does the Supreme Court say? You got it, no problem. You can be arrested for anything, even if the punishment for the offense uh, doesn't include jail time. So for, on the basis of these superpowers, uh, the police have an extraordinary amount of power. So in that last case, the court was looking at Mrs. Atwater, this, this white soccer mom from Texas, but it knows that that's not who the police are going to use that power against, right? Uh, they know exactly how that power is going to be used. Uh, it's going to be used against somebody like Eric Garner. Uh, Eric Garner, the um, man in New York who was put in an illegal chokehold uh, by the NYPD. So just that story, because it's a good one about how, it's a horrible one actually, but it illustrates just how, how messed up the system is. And I'm going to end on a, a more positive note with a, a vision for change and then want to have a conversation with you. 
So uh, I think that the uh, story of what happened to Eric Garner illustrates a lot of the, the woes of our criminal justice process. So you all know that Eric Garner was suspected of, of selling Lucy cigarettes, right? That's a single tobacco cigarette. Uh, and it turns out that that day that the cop arrested him, uh, he wasn't actually guilty of it that day. That cop just had it in for him because the cop had had previous run-ins with him and other black men. Uh, the cop officer, Pantaleo, had a couple of complaints about inappropriately touching African-American men. And he had a thing uh, against Eric Garner. But Eric Garner did, as a living, sell Lucy cigarettes. Again, he just wasn't guilty of it on that specific instance. And he'd been doing it for a while. Uh, what attracted the police to this work that he'd been doing for a long time? It's Staten Island. Staten Island is, just like it sounds, an island. Um, close to Manhattan, you take a ferry, right? Everybody knows how expensive housing is in New York, so gentrification. I don't have to tell you about that in Baltimore either. This is how it works in Staten Island. People get an idea, hey, because it's an island, it's not that far, island means water, great views, so we're going to develop this property right near where the ferry takes off. So we're going to build some high-rise condos and you know, hope some, some rich folks uh, move in. And what happens with gentrification is always step-up law enforcement, right? Uh, to try to run the people out of the neighborhood who've been living there for years. And so that's why they start focusing on this park where, again, for a while, Mr. Garner had been selling these tobacco cigarettes. And, and, and that's what originally uh, focused their attention to him. Again, this is a, a fable. It's a true, tragic story about how the process works. Uh, why was Mr. Garner selling Lucy cigarettes? So there had been a financial crisis all over the country, including in New York. Uh, the crisis was started by these mortgage bankers who were stealing people's homes. Not one of those people went to jail. But what happened instead is that the government bailed them out. In New York, a billion dollars. A billion dollars went to help these folks who, who stole people's American dreams. Well, that state money has to come from somewhere, right? So the state needs some money now. Mayor Bloomberg has said he's not going to raise taxes. It turns out he meant he wasn't going to raise taxes for rich people. So what he does is say cigarettes. At that point, the tax was six cents a carton. Mayor Bloomberg raises the tax to a dollar fifty. A car, uh, not, I'm sorry, not a carton, a pack. Six cents a pack to a dollar fifty a pack. So who's that impact? That doesn't hurt rich people, right? That hurts poor people. So if you're poor and you smoke cigarettes, you can't afford it. So then there's this market develop that develops. So again, this isn't. I, I love having this cover. I love coming to Baltimore because you all get it. So one of the things you get is that a lot of the young men and women who are in the system, especially for, for drugs, these are, are entrepreneurs, right? 
if they had an opportunity, they'd be, um, Beyonce says, I might be the next Bill Gates in the making. A lot of these people will be the next Bill Gates in the making. So Mr. Gardner, like a lot of people, senses an opportunity because in Virginia, they don't tax cigarettes nearly that much. So he rents trucks that drive, bring cartons of, of, of cigarettes from Virginia uh, to New York, where he sells them uh, at a much lower rate. That's a crime. That's what the police are focusing on him for, right? Again, he has his opportunity because of this billion dollar bailout for these who, none of, none of whom of those mortgage thieves have gone to jail. But police are focusing on, on, on Mr. Garner. How do we know about what happened to Mr. Garner? Uh, because there was a young man who took a, a, a videotape of it. Uh, the tape of the illegal chokehold, you remember that, right? Mr. Garner uh, saying 11 times, I can't breathe. Uh, they call the paramedic, paramedic uh, looks at him, expiring on the street, doesn't give Mr. Garner the same courtesy that most of us would give a, a dying dog. And we saw all this because of the videotape, which goes viral that night. Uh, the man who takes the videotape, that same night, he goes home, cops roll up to his apartment, they park their car, and they shine their spotlight on his window, and that's a sign, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. And this young man, he doesn't help his case because he sells drugs. That's not the only thing he does, but that's one of the things that he does. And so he starts getting arrested for, by the cops for things that he has done and things that he has not done. Uh, including one day the police execute a search warrant at his house. Come to his house, middle of the night, lock up his mom. And you know, you know how they do the search warrants. They bring the battering rams. They do all that. But what else do they bring? They bring a, a video camera. And they videotape everything. That's weird, right? So that night... Uh, a paper, a newspaper, and this, at this point he's not arrested because he hasn't done anything that night. His mom is, again, in handcuffs. They're trying to pin something on her. Um, uh, a newspaper reporter asked the cops, why did you bring a, a videotape? Uh, the answer is, he had his videotape, and now we have ours. So, uh, the cops, the prosecutors make a deal with this man. Uh, you do five years in prison and we won't go after your mother. Uh, that man is now in prison uh, doing five years. Uh, they say his crime was, was drugs, but his real crime was, was filming truth to power. And that's how the, the system works. That's why it's so broken that, again, it, it, I, I want to end by thinking about what can we do. And, and here there's different theories, right, uh, about what could create change. So there's a theory about reform, which is an experiment that you here in Baltimore are embarked on um, with the federal oversight of your local police department. 
And one of the things I want to do in Chocode is, is to ask, well, does it work? Because it's not the first time that the police have come in, right? And I'm sorry that the federal government, the Department of Justice have come in and tried to change a police department. So when I look at the numbers, it turns out that it works about half the time in the short term. It's super expensive. It's hard. Um, but when it works, it means that the police beat up and kill fewer people. Uh, that more people in the community trust them um, and feel better about them. Again, that just happens about half of the time. But even that half of the time, if it works, I say that's great, right? Because that means that, that fewer people are, are being hurt by the cops. Uh, what I encourage in Chokehold is, is that we also dream bigger, right? that we have a, a different kind of vision. And, and so this is going to shock you from a former prosecutor, but the big vision in Chocode is, is abolition. Uh, uh, abolition of, of prison. So what's that mean? Well, one, it means that we have to recognize how broken the system is, that it can't be reformed. Well, we didn't talk about reforming slavery. We talked about abolishing it. Well, we didn't talk about reforming the old Jim Crow. We talked about abolishing it. I don't think we can afford to only think about reforming the criminal legal system and the police and the prison. We have to think about abolition. Here's why that's not crazy. What is it that we, we hope prison does? I think most of us would say we hope it protects us from people who would hurt us if they weren't locked up. And we hope that it makes people who've caused harm accountable for what they've done. A lot of the people in this room know that prison doesn't do either of those. It doesn't make us safer. And it certainly doesn't make people responsible when they've caused harm. Oh, how do we know that it doesn't do that? Uh, again, in Chokot, I'm a law professor, right? I like evidence. So I look at the evidence about who's in prison and what would happen if, if they weren't. So one of the things to understand is that when we talk about abolition, it's a gradual process. It doesn't mean we lock, we go to every prison tomorrow and open every door. Because everybody's concerned about the 5%, except people don't know it's 5%. 5% of people who are in prison are there for homicide or for sexual assault or for hurting a child. 5%. What do we do about those people? I'm not sure. But we don't have to know to start working on the other 95%, right? So who's in that other 95%? Well, 80% of people who are locked up are either mentally ill or they're addicts. You could say that prisons are the biggest providers of mental health services, except that they don't actually provide those services. Right? People need them. They need that kind of help, but they don't get it in prison. Uh, we can talk about the 10% of people in prison who are over 55. Uh, this will blow your minds, but a number of prisons are now operating assisted living facilities. Uh, 
clearly people who are in an assisted living facility uh, don't need to be locked up. So again, a conservative, not a crazy um, black man like me, but a conservative uh, think tank at New York University, their number is 40%, that we could uh, open the doors for 40% of people who are locked up right now and it would make no difference in terms of, of public safety. Um, so again, that's a way, it, it, it's a way. A, a lot of people in the um, movement for black lives are imagining what a world would look like without prisons. And they're looking at, at experiments that are going on all around the country. There's a great one in Brooklyn called Common Justice. We're working with the progressive prosecutor there uh, for some cases in which a man is accused, a man or woman, it's usually a man accused of a violent crime, if the victim agrees, cases taken completely out of the criminal justice system and, and put in this restorative justice. It's not like diversion. It's not like if the guy messes up, then he's going to go back to the system. It's totally outside of the system. But what it is is for a couple years, uh, the person who's caused harm has to deal with why he did it, and he has to make it up to the victim in a way that makes her feel not whole, but better. Like she's gotten some recognition for her injury. And the man has to take steps in order to make himself better so that he's not going to do this again. So it's an intensive process of, of therapy and discussions between the guy who caused the harm and the victim about how much it hurt and how he's got to come to a way of not doing this again. Sometimes men in the middle of this process, they say, man, I wish I'd gone to jail because this is too hard dealing with my own stuff. But guess what? It works way better than prison, right? Uh, people who are in this program when they come out, they're much less likely to wind up back in jail, as opposed to the 60% uh, of people who come home and then within a year are locked back up. Uh, so this is, is one way of, uh, of imagining, again, uh, a world in which when people cause harm, and especially when they do things like, like sell drugs, that we don't respond by, by locking them in a cage. Uh, that we respond in a way that's going to make us all safer um, and freer. So, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, conservative Supreme Court Justice, uh, he said that when he was a judge in D.C., he would sometimes look outside the window of his chambers and he would see all of these young black men going to criminal court in chains and he would think, there but for the grace of God go I. President Obama, he actually, I think he said this in Baltimore. It was the same phrase. President Obama said, there but for the grace of God go I. My friends, the determination of who goes to criminal court in chains, it should not be so fortuitous. It should not depend so much on race and class. As long as it does, we need to resist until that system is brought down. 
Thank you very much. So this is the fun part, you know, some, some, some time for, for conversations, questions, quick comments. Um, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yes, ma'am. It's very successful in Brooklyn, and now they're doing a, a, a version of it in the Bronx. So if you're interested, the name is Common Justice. Google it. Um, it's rare because one of the things that it requires is a prosecutor who will consent to it, right? So the prosecutor in Brooklyn um, is a progressive, um, and one of the things he requires, and we can understand why this is, is that the victim consent. But victims in Brooklyn consent because they know if the regular response is to put this guy in the system that that's not really going to help anybody. You know, one of the things I think about when I um, mention abolition, another reason it's not crazy is because about 60% of people who are the victims of violent crime they choose abolition anyway. What does that mean? They don't call the police. 60% of people who are the victims of violent crime do not call the police because, again, they understand that the police aren't going to make things better. Often they make things worse. But they need an intervention, right? They need to feel safe. If somebody's hurt them, there does need to be some response. So this is a response. But again, it depends on a prosecutor who understands, who gets it. And there's not a whole lot of prosecutors like that unfortunately. Um, again, it's, it's something that I think you should discuss with, with Mrs. Mosby because it's a, a, a program that I think would have a lot of uh, benefit uh, here in Baltimore. Yes, sir. So again, there's no question that there's this laser focus on black men, and especially young black men. And people have different theories about why that is. So one of the things I do with Chokehold is to explore some of those theories. So a theory is the problem is the, the young men themselves. That if brothers would just do right, if we would just pull up our pants, we wouldn't have to worry about being stopped and frisked. Right? A lot of people think that. So, again, maybe some of you think that. Um, I think the problem is, is broader. I think the problem, again, is more structural, uh, that people don't have the kinds of opportunities 
that they need. And sometimes people want to say, well, that's about money, right? So we know that there are things we could do to get the, the dope boys off the corner, but it's going to cost too much money. Here's why that's not the reason why we don't have these, res these necessary responses. Because we spend a whole lot of money on young black men right now. In, in, in New York, in the Bronx, I'm pretty sure in Baltimore, uh, there are these blocks that are called million dollar blocks. Why are they called million dollar blocks? Because that's how much money the government spends on that one block locking people up. A million dollars in that one block. Uh, Google Justice Mapping Project, uh, I'd say it's, it's beautiful, but it's, it's, it's horrible. Uh, but it's a map of New York. And these million dollar blocks are in red. All over Harlem and the Bronx and Brooklyn. Not in the fancy neighborhoods in Manhattan. But again, million dollars for this one block. So a lot of us say, well, what if? What if instead of spending this million dollars on this one block to keep young women and men in cages, health care, better schools, job training? Uh, imagine the difference that that would make. Uh, yes, sir. Again, I wish I could say I hadn't, but, but it happens all, all, unfortunately, it happens all the time. And um, again, we could think about civil liberties, the fact that people should be able to walk to their house and go inside without being bothered by the police. Right? We can think about that. But we can also think about public safety, the fact that the police need to find out what happened to that detective who was killed, right? But guess what? Those are the same values. Here's what I mean. Somebody knows what happened to that detective. People in the community know what happened to that detective. But if the cops are coming knocking on your door saying, we need to look around, where were you that night? You live in this block, show some ID to get in. How do we know you live here? You don't want to cooperate with the police. You don't trust the police. And that's how the police make cases. And so the irony of these heavy-handed tactics that they're using to try to find out what happened to the detective, they make it more difficult for the police. And that's a consistent thing. So yes, I think people should be free. The country that black men live in now is not a free country. At the end of the day, that's as much about people being safe as it is about the liberty 
uh, interests of these young black men. When the police treat people the way that they treat young black men, um, I'm going to keep it real, it makes you hate the police. And if you hate the police, then again, that makes it more difficult for the police. It makes it virtually impossible for the police to make their cases. And the last point about that is about, again, the system working the way it's supposed to. So this is a Supreme Court case that, about what happened to Freddie Gray. Remember the officer who first saw him, the officer on the bike, uh, says that he looked at Mr. Gray and Mr. Gray uh, took off. And that's what made him stop him. He didn't have any reason to suspect him of a crime. Only reason he stopped him was because Mr. Gray took off when he saw the cop. You're not going to believe this. So that's legal, but it's only legal in what the court calls a high crime area, which means a black or Latino neighborhood. So case comes from Chicago. It's called Wardlow. Same situation, police see a, a 40-year-old black man. Again, sometimes we talk about young black men, but a lot of us know this doesn't only happen to young brothers, it happens to older brothers, and it doesn't only happen to brothers, it happens to women as well. This is a guy in his 40s in Chicago, he sees the cops, he take off, takes off running. Uh, police don't have any reason to suspect him, but they stop him and frisk him just because he ran. So the question before the Supreme Court is, can the police do that? Can they... Stop and frisk you if they have no other reason to think you're guilty other than that you don't feel like being bothered with them that day. And the Supreme Court says you get it, no problem, but guess what? No problem if it's in a high crime area. Is that the stop and frisk? This is the Warlow case. It's an extension of stop and frisk. So the court says if the police see somebody, the court literally says this. If the police see somebody running in a high crime area, which to the court means a black neighborhood, even if they don't have any reason to stop them, they can. Now, they're allowed to make him stop and pat him down if they think he might be dangerous. But guess what? The court says police can't do that in a middle class neighborhood. They can't do that in a rich neighborhood, which means literally if the officer had seen Mr. Gray in a middle class neighborhood in Baltimore, same conduct he would not have been able to stop him. Only can do that in a black neighborhood, and that's authorized by the Supreme Court. Um, yes, sir. I understood you at the end to say that we need to resist. What does that resistance look like? It's a great question. So in chokehold, the question is, what does resistance look like? So the broader issue is, well, how does change happen? And especially, how does change happen for black people? So in, in chokehold, uh, I look at three different theories about change. So one is, is law, right? So the civil rights movement, for example, what was mainly a movement about law, about making arguments and, and persuading people uh, that we needed to do better as a country when it comes to African Americans. So you tell me how successful you think that that legal strategy worked. So the crowning achievement was, was Brown versus Board of Education, right? Uh, Thurgood Marshall, important connections here in Baltimore. 
greatest civil rights lawyer of all time, greatest case, gets the Supreme Court to say, against all odds, that separate but equal is unconstitutional. No more segregated schools. So I don't know what schools are like in Baltimore. Actually, I kind of do. So again, in the movement for black lives, there's not a lot of optimism about the law. The idea is that it hasn't really created the kind of change that we need. Some people uh, talk about violence, right? And, and when we look at how the greatest, what you could call the, the most successful fight against racial subordination, uh, how that fight was won, it was won with, with the most bloody destructive war in American history. The Civil War is how slavery ended. So uh, Jay-Z says, Obama, change is going to come or I'm going to buy the whole hood guns on me. Uh, a consistent theme in black political discourse is that that violence is a way of, of creating change. So in Chokehold, I, I think about that. I discourage it, uh, in part because it's immoral, and in part because violence against people uh, is immoral, and it's not going to work. If, if, as a political campaign, political strategy, African Americans were to adopt that, um, they would be crushed. Now, well, I think that in terms of what violence means, uh, we can ask questions about that. So um, what happened here at the CVS, um, that was effective. If that CVS had not been burned, then I don't think we would have seen charges in the uh, Freddie Gray case. Now, that doesn't mean that as a strategy that has to be adopted. But again, when we keep it real, we know that, you know, sometimes that's the language that people understand, right? So I think any violence against another person is immoral. It wouldn't work. Uh, but again, when you look at history and when you look at how change happens, um, uh, that's something that is a consistent thing. And then a, a final consistent theme in, in race discourse is, um, is capitalism. That we need our own stuff. And, and here, African Americans are often contrasted with Asian Americans and black immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. So the idea is those folks also experience discrimination, right? Police don't like black people from Africa any more than they like me from Chicago. Uh, but those guys, the argument goes, they don't worry about civil rights or protests. They worry about like getting their own stuff. Um, a video, a cool video I would have shown you is um, Beyonce, Formation. Her, her song where she depicts the, the, what's going on now with race and gender, she depicts it in dire terms. She tells black women, if you don't organize, you are going to be eliminated. That's what's going to happen. Right? But what's her response? Uh, end of the video, she says, best revenge is your papers. Papers is, is money. Again, that's the song where she also says, I might be the next Bill Gates in the making. So again, that's another consistent theme 
in racial conversations about what black people need to do, that we need to exploit uh, capitalism in order to blunt the effects of white supremacy. So different theories, again, I have my own ideas about you know what I believe, but in Chokehold I, I present those, so you can think about which ones you think are, are, are right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I agree totally. So um, it, it's a program about um, therapy. So part of it is a, a, a understanding that a lot of the issues that people in the system have are at the end of the day, there are issues about health care. Uh, these are folks who need treatment. And, and in a way, I learned this the hard time. Actually, the last time I had the pleasure of being here at the Pratt Museum was about uh, five or six years ago. And I did a program with Michelle Alexander, uh, who wrote The New Jim Crow. And we were all about uh, criticizing the war on drugs. And what we were saying is, um, we don't need to lock up people for using drugs. Because first of all, they need treatment, not punishment. Second of all, the sentences are, are way too long. Um, and third of all, there's no way that we can expect police to do that. That's not all about race and class. So again, we need to take the power away from the police because they're using it selectively. It turns out a lot of that is true, not only about drug crimes, but are, for people who are at risk of other kinds of crimes, including violent crime, right? A, a lot of what those folks need is treatment rather than punishment. Uh, a, a lot of people who grow up in, in, in high poverty neighborhoods, uh, a lot of children have dealt with an extraordinary amount of trauma, right? And, and they need some kind of intervention other than just locking them up and throwing away the key. It's about, about again, doing the right thing, about being moral. It's about human and civil rights, but it's also about public safety. Because 95% of people who are locked up come home, 95%. And so a question is, during that time where they're away, are, are they getting treatment? Are they getting the kinds of services that would make them do better uh, when they come home? And the answer is, is no, they're not. And so there is nothing aside from medication 
that they give them, and many of them come back out into the community. And of course, there's no place for them to go, and they probably have been institutionalized. Yes. So their idea of safety is to get rearrested and be a part of the recidivism way and go back again. Yeah, and again, that's a tragedy, right? Yeah, you know, Jesse Jackson used to say that for some people, prison is a step up, right? Um, it, it, it's 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 healthcare, not not great healthcare, but it's better than what some people have um, on the outside. It, it's a, a, you know, three or, or two square meals a day, and and, and that's a, a tragedy. But again, it shows how we're using prison, right? So do, do we have time for a couple of other questions? How about one, one more question from someone who hasn't already asked a question? Uh, it's too hard to choose. How, how about you, ma'am? Yes. Yeah. So actually, in Chilcote, I, I, I tell a, a few stories about Baltimore. Um, one is a, an instance in which some kids were acting crazy in a schoolyard, um, wilding out. Some concerned neighbors were watching the kids. You know, these knuckleheads, somebody's going to get hurt. Watching that. Uh, and then what do they see? They, they see a line of police officers uh, assembling. They're going to go down and, and take care of the situation. These neighbors, they don't like what the kids are doing, and they don't like what the police are doing. Police are just going to make things worse, right? Go in and lock up these children or treat them badly. So. They have to do something. What do, what do they do? They, they, they call some, some elders in the neighborhood. And these elders go down and do what, what my mom, who was a second grade teacher, did. Uh, my mom was a second grade teacher in Chicago for many years. And she asked the question that I asked, well, why do we have all these police officers in the school? Right? I'm so, my mom says, I know how to make kids behave. You know, I know how to do I don't need the cops to come and arrest. You know, I know what to do with children. And these neighborhood elders, they also knew what to do. So they worked that out by getting the kids to stop acting silly um, without involving the police. And, and there's a lot of people from various communities that are working it out that way, that are having those kinds of conversations. So women who are the victims of, of domestic violence. Something has to be done, right? They need an intervention. They need someone to come in and make sure that that guy is not going to do that anymore. Um, but they also know that when you call the police, again, sometimes that makes things worse now. But I hope you read, um, you read Choco. Um, uh, please read the Ferguson report as well and the Baltimore report. So these are reports that the Department of Justice does um, when they're asked to come in and take over a local police department. So the amazing horrible stories about what the police do to you, the citizens of Baltimore. And again, one of the points is that that's not bad apple cops. That's the system working the way it's supposed to. And, and I'm thinking of that because in the Ferguson report, the Department of Justice 
tells a story about a woman who called the police because he was beating her up. Uh, by the time the police got there, he was gone. Cops look around. Uh, they say, well, does he live here? She says, yes, he does. Uh, cops say, you're under arrest for occupancy permit violation. You live in public housing. We're supposed to know who lives here. His name is none of When that happened to another woman in Ferguson, she said she would never call the police again. She didn't care if she was being killed. Right? So, again, there's lots of people in our society, trans people, who extraordinarily victimization just walking down the street, not just from citizens, private citizens, but also from the cops. So, again, a bunch of people need interventions, need to be safe, but don't feel comfortable or safer calling the police. And again, uh, ending uh, on, a, on a positive note, uh, these people are, are, are working it out. Uh, and, and that's what they do. And, and, and in closing, again, since um, this is a day when I'm feeling more optimistic, in part by what happened in Alabama, and, what, and in part by the, the people who accomplished what happened in African-American, and those people are African-American women, right? So these are the people who are going to create the kinds of change and transformation um, that we need. And these are the kinds of conversations. So I don't have all of the answers, right? Uh, in Chocolate, I have some suggestions. If you're into reform, there are things you can do. Uh, if you want to, yeah, you can, you can get your books on. But I think you should all do something. So that's the last thing I'll say, right? Sometimes, in them, sometimes we um, ask what we, what we would have done back in the day, right? So sometimes we think, like, well, I think, well, what would I have done back in slavery? And, and I used to think, well, I would have been a runaway. I would have been like Matt Turner. I would have been one of those people who was leading a rebellion. But the reality is most, most people didn't do that, right? And then I think, well, what would I have done during the civil rights movement? Like, would I have been one of those people who sat in at the lunch counters? Would I have been one of those people who took it to the streets with Malcolm? I hope so. Well, the reality is most people didn't do that. And the movement for black lives, there's a, a, a saying that I'm going to end with. Uh, what they say is, if you want to know what you would have done back in the day, ask yourself, what are you doing right now? Because this is the civil rights movement of our time. Uh, I so appreciate you being here. And, and I know uh, that you are going to be active members uh, of this community, this beloved community of people who resist. Thank you for being here. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.